Hello and welcome to the September 2012 edition of the Lesbian Gay Law Notes podcast. I'm Brad Snyder, Executive Director of Legal, the LGBT Bar Association of Greater New York. And with me is Professor Art Leonard of New York Law School, Chief Editor and Writer Extraordinaire of Lesbian Gay Law Notes, the most comprehensive monthly publication covering the latest legal developments affecting the LGBT community here and abroad. So let's get started talking about the lead story, or the lead stories in the September 2012 issue of Law Notes. But first, I was struck when I came down here. We're actually on the corner of Worth and Leonard Street. I've never noticed this. Are we on Worth? No, we're on West Broadway and Leonard Street, right? West Broadway and Leonard is where the entrance to the law school is. Uh, the school, in in honor of its centennial, changed the name of the street in honor of me since, well, I'm just kidding. <laughs> Actually, Leonard was a general in the Mexican-American War. See, I had a I feeling think. you were going to know the history behind Leonard Street. I think that's the Leonard that well, they named it. You're the type of guy who takes the time to learn yeah, this, but I, this street I may be named. thinking of worse. Okay. Well, then no one's going to know the difference, so hopefully we haven't offended anyone. Okay, here we go. So um, we're going to begin in many ways where we left off last talking in July, talking about DOMA and other marriage-related uh, litigation and developments. And on that front, we've got Section 3 of DOMA being struck down by another federal judge, while at the same time, a federal court in Hawaii seems to be stuck in a bit of a pre-Bowers v. Hardwick state of mind. So let's start with the good news, and that is that the U.S. District Court for Connecticut in Peterson v. Office of, Pers- of Personnel Management has struck down the federal definition of marriage found in Section 3 of DOMA. And as our listeners probably know very well, Section 3 defines marriage as between one man and one woman for all purposes of federal law, which thereby effectively denies benefits and recognition to thousands of same-sex couples lawfully married in marriage equality jurisdictions. So, Art, we've been dealing with a lot of DOMA rulings as of late, obviously. Can you start by telling us whether there's something that may distinguish this case and this ruling from other prior ones we've been discussing? Well, in some respects, it's a more of the same. That is, uh, we've had one case after another where federal district judges have held that the arguments being advanced by uh, Paul Clement, the former solicitor general hired by the uh, House Republican black, black <laughs> hired by the House Republican leadership to defend Section Three, since the Attorney General and the President no longer care to do so. Uh, he makes the same arguments over and over because those are the arguments he has. And uh, this judge, uh, Vanessa Bryant, the U.S. District Court in Connecticut, finds them no more rational than the other judges have found them. Uh, she does take the time, however, to examine whether a higher level of scrutiny than mere rational basis should apply. And, and I, sorry to jump in. We're going to talk a lot yes. about that. But right. I, I, before we get to the explanation of that, um, do you think – before you sort of walk us through that – uh, to use a phrase I use often with you, which is you're always walking us through the law here. Um, why does she take the time to do something that she really doesn't, doesn't have to do? Uh, I think this partly has to do with the motion that was presented to her, asking her to put the case on hold. Uh, a few months ago, Blag filed a motion to put the case on hold on the theory that the case from the Southern District of New York that we talked about last time, the E.D. Windsor case, was going to the Second Circuit. And so why should the district court in Connecticut, which was also subject to review by the Second Circuit, why should she even spend time deciding this case when it might be decided by the Second Circuit? Uh, And the judge reacted rather indignantly to that. And In fact, uh, she issued a little ruling that was a a bit sharp in in saying, well, you know, the Second Circuit might benefit from my opinion too. (laughs) And... And I think it's it's even possible that the district judge, having devoted a lot of time to this, she indicated that she had already begun drafting her opinion. 
So it's, it's unlikely, having invested the time, that you wanted to just put the case on hold. Uh, to, to distinguish her opinion, I think, from the other opinions, uh, let, let's explore this other issue. I mean, there were other issues that were raised as well in this case. And that's a good segue, though. Let's, let's, let's talk about that. As, as we see in, in, in all these cases, the issue of the appropriate level of review uh, is obviously an important one. And as you're pointing out, this judge here takes the time to assess whether or not uh, heightened scrutiny should apply, really strict scrutiny based on homosexuals being a suspect class. And she concludes that it should. Should. And tell us a little bit about how she reaches that, because, I mean, I may be biased. I'm sure we're all a little biased. But it seemed like she went through a rather deliberate and methodical review of why why that sort of level of scrutiny should apply. Well, I, I think what's what's noteworthy is that there was a bit of contention here about the history uh, the one point that even courts that have ruled against us on the, high, on the high scrutiny question, they look at the various factors and say the first factor is whether there's a history of discrimination against members of the class. And uh, she was very upset with the argument that Mr. Clement, Clement advanced yeah, on that. She, tell us a little bit he, about that. He though. sort of cherry-picked some quotes from a, from a historical analysis, uh, and the h- historical analysis was based on the idea that homosexuality as a concept, that homosexual, homosexuals as a group identification is a relatively recent phenomenon in, in the sense that even the word homosexual wasn't invented until the mid-19th century, and the idea that there was such a thing as a sexual orientation that might differ between different groups of people is a relatively modern concept. So, all, all the, uh, so, so therefore, the argument was there isn't a long history of discrimination against homosexuals because they didn't exist. No, all the discrimination was premised on conduct previously. Right. It was the argument. It was sodomy. It was about sodomy. <laughs> but That's our, what it was about. All right. I know yes. we had a little conversation yes. um, that wasn't on the microphone about yes. Mr. Clement, and I do yes. want to spend a little time talking about this fellow. But um, – you know, you, you said he's making the arguments that are available to him. But one of the things, and, you know, I don't, I, I don't pretend to know all the, the, the reasons a court eventually reaches this stage, but at what point do these arguments start being sort of clever and um, arguments made in the zealous pursuit of, uh, you know, representing the client and becomes quite on their face frivolous arguments that should be more than just labeled, this judge says she found them unavailing, curious. I mean, are they not sanctionable arguments at some point when they misconstrue an entire expert's sort of review of the history of discrimination against gays? Well, it would be nice to accept that point of view, Brett. (laughs) It's a question. Well, I look at it this way. The point is we, we don't win every case, and some judges take these arguments seriously. Uh, several courts have rejected the claim that heightened scrutiny should apply. Uh, I think, you know, she she was a little uh, sarcastic about uh, Mr. Clement's use of this argument on on the theory that it was uh, really too cute. Well, because it was know. also not the only example of it. Uh, and the the writer right. for this law note also points out. Uh, Clement's use of uh, some, some evidence out of Scandinavia about right. how um, – Yeah, this is interesting. There, there has been observed a long-term trend of a decline in the rate of marriage in Scandinavian countries. And some people have attributed that to the phenomenon of same-sex marriage. Because uh, obviously there couldn't be any other well, explanation for what occurred. Well, but you know, this is one variable. Okay. But the problem is most of the Scandinavian countries are late arrivals to same-sex marriage. Although Denmark was the first country to create a registered partnership status for same-sex couples, it was not called marriage. And, in fact, the, uh, the earliest same-sex marriage was in Canada and the Netherlands in this century. 
So the 1990s developments in Scandinavia, where several countries adopted registered partnerships and gave them many but not all the rights of marriage, uh, are not a fair test of whether true marriage equality results in a decline in heterosexual marriage. And uh, this trend, as the judge points out, this trend towards a lower proportion of the population getting married was observable much earlier, before even registered partnerships, and is largely attributable to the great entry of women into the workforce and to the development of social welfare uh, programs and benefits in those countries, especially national health care, which made it possible for women to be much more independent. Well, then I'm going I'm I'm to pose the same question again mm-hmm. in a slightly different way. I mean, Paul Clement knows this. He knows what you just said. Yes. <laughs> but he made the arguments anyway. So is this, is this disingenuous? Is this misleading the court? Uh, well, this court wasn't misled. And uh, I think they were going to hand – this Judge Bryant was going to hand him a loss anyway. Why rub it in even further? She was reasonably sarcastic about some of these arguments in her opinion. Uh, there are – I think it, it is wor- worth pointing out, and I think maybe several podcasts ago we have pointed out, that there have been jurisdictions, let's say I think it was the state of California or others, when faced with having to defend – uh, you know, a statute or a determination they didn't like on the marriage front did leave certain arguments off the table, so to speak. I mean, it is not you are not required to right. throw the kitchen sink at the court. Including the Justice Department. In uh, the Gill case, which is the First Circuit decision striking down Section 3, uh, initially the Justice Department defended Section 3 in that case. And I don't mean the Bush Justice Department. I mean the Obama Justice Department it initially defended it. They defended it by advancing a series of arguments, but not the arguments based on the legislative history, because they looked at the uh, committee reports, they looked at the debates back in 1996 when DOMA was passed, and they said, we can't make those arguments. We can't make those arguments because we don't believe them, because, in fact, a large part of our political base are people who are gay. Well, and and, and to be charitable, perhaps, then the, the looking at it through a lens that allows them to see the idea that much of the legislative history showed a motivation based on anti-gay animus and right. nothing more. I think that's so. They came up reading. with new arguments, okay. and some of the new arguments, uh, many people think, are sort of make weights, disingenuous. And mm-hmm. in fact, that's pretty much what uh, Judge Bryant says in this case, because these are the arguments. Now, what what Clement does is because he's representing the House Republicans, not representing the administration. He makes the old legislative history arguments, and he makes the new arguments that the Justice Department made unsuccessfully in uh, the Gill case and that have been made unsuccessfully in the Galinsky case and unsuccessfully in the Windsor case. And now it's all coming to a head because the big news of the summer is that everyone's asking the Supreme Court to jump right in and forget about the courts of appeals. Uh, In the Galinsky case, Lambda Legal has said to the Supreme Court, there's no need for the Ninth Circuit to review this case. Take it directly. Uh, In uh, the Windsor case, the ACLU has said to the Supreme Court, there's no need to spend time in the Second Circuit on this case. Take it directly. And now, just uh, just a, w- a few weeks after Judge Bryant issued her decision, uh, the uh, gay and lesbian advocates and defenders who represent the who, plaintiffs who, who in won this a victory, case, who won Gill, mm-hmm. uh, they're saying to the Supreme Court in uh, in papers just filed recently. Don't waste time at the Second Circuit with this case. The Second Circuit must be highly offended by this. Uh, I think the Second Circuit is probably relieved to not have to rule <laughs> on a politically controversial issue. Fair enough. The Second Circuit is one of a handful of federal circuits that has never 
settled the issue of the level of judicial review. And, and I guess, to be fair, that's why, where it's sort of anything goes with respect to the arguments that could be made with re- concerning the level of scrutiny, that this is an no. open playing field, so to speak, um, it, it is in because, the Second Circuit as opposed to some right. other places. And in the Supreme Court, because the Supreme Court has so far refrained from analyzing the issue, mm-hmm. uh, because in the two cases where they really were presented with a strong opportunity to analyze the issue – they backed off and said, we can decide this based on a rational basis because we're deciding in favor of the plaintiffs. Mm-hmm. You know, we're, we're deciding in favor – And you'd be uh, talking about Lawrence. Lawrence, Lawrence and Romer. Now, yeah. Lawrence was not an equal protection case, but uh, the equal protection argument was certainly made and cert was granted on the equal protection question. But the court decided to do a due process analysis and just sort of to mention in passing this could have been an equal protection case. Mm-hmm. But I think the court has been refraining from deciding the equal protection question – because they fear the consequences uh, for all kinds of government policies that might have a discriminatory impact on gay people. So they have decided cases on other grounds. And uh, this case really sort of puts it to them. They have to decide and, what and the level is, we, unless they decide there's no rational basis and they can evade again. Right, and then they, don't, they still don't have to right. answer the question. Um, and it's worth backing up just for a moment to describe it. It should come as no surprise, but the, the plaintiffs in this case are a variety of, uh, of couples who are legally wed uh, in marriage equality. Several couples several. And, a, and a widow or mm-hmm. a widower, I think. So have had the very real experience, as the plaintiffs in these cases have, of having federal benefits and recognition under all sorts of programs denied to them by virtue of the operation of DOMA. Right. That's the basis of their standing, of course. Absolutely. Although standing here was also challenged. Uh, some some standing of the plaintiffs was challenged by Blag on yeah. – uh, See, on Blag, Blag says if you look at the Internal Revenue Code – Well, this is another the, argument. I'm not yes, going to get off this the, point. Is this really a legitimate argument well, you're they about said, to Well, they said the Internal Revenue Code itself – requires opposite-sex marriages. And therefore, the DOMA definition is irrelevant. Right, except they had IRS letters and other evidence in which... Relying on DOMA. (laughs) The IRS said, our hands are tied because of DOMA. So there is this march. I'll I'll, I'll instead attribute it to... I think it's fair. You you, you noted the sort of the tenor of some of the judges' interpretation of this. I think it's very clear that the judge found some of the presentation in this case a little troubling or was not only not moved, but... um, was sort of going out of the way to label it for what but, some but of us might see. Let, let's face reality here. No, okay. I, I'm not interested in facing I, reality. I think, I think what, no. are you, what are you, a Republican? Uh, <laughs> We're a nonpartisan is, is this I a faith-based know. podcast? <laughs> All right, I... Uh, this is a point where I might want to express again. The, the points of views expressed in this podcast are, are those, not those of legal, <laughs> but only I, of the individual speakers. I can't control yes. Arthur Leonard, yes. obviously. Uh, so, so let's make this point. Paul Clement was a very effective advocate as Solicitor General during the second term of George W. Bush. He is a premier appellate advocate. He's retained for some of the most highest-profile cases. Uh, I mean, the Republican leadership of the House went to the top when they hired Paul Clement to represent them here. But they handed him a loser, Yeah, but he seems very happy to be scraping the barrel here. Well, I don't know if he's happy. He's making a fair amount of money out of it. Well, Uh, I don't know if he... Nah. Well, they've appropriated millions of dollars. No, I, I know this know. to be true. I, I guess I find the he's whole thing. He's going to the little boutique firm that he's at now. You know, he he gave up his partnership in a major firm in order to handle we this should, litigation. And we, we, should, we should weep for that. Well, as as members of the bar, we should point out that, that people sure. are entitled to have a defense. Yes, you know? they are. Although this is it's, – it's worth pausing. I mean we've had this discussion on the forums, literally a forum yes. on this. This is not a, a, a situation where there's a criminal defendant entitled – 
to under, you know right. un- <laughs> entitled to a defense right. uh, and a vigorous defense of that. This is this is a different kind of lawsuit where I don't think you can say that being a zealous advocate means that you have to make every arguably disingenuous argument you can on behalf of your client, regardless of the consequences. Well, I don't know that the bar has to has I, to accept that. Is I, that really I, true? I don't think we'll settle that argument No, here, but, but I'm just saying it's not, I, I don't I think, think it's that clear. Mis, Mr. Clement is putting forward arguments that have been accepted in some forms. I think so, 100 years from now, people will read the stories of his, the arguments and find them... Risible. <laughs> not the word I would have used, yeah, no. but... When you the way okay. you did it with such explanation, explanation, I, well, I agree with it. Okay, I think, so I think before we leave this, we sh- we should point out, and and this is the big thing to watch. Okay, and then we're going to transition right, to the bad news right? to the Hawaii case. Yes. yes, but but this is this is the important point for people to be alert to because it's going to happen before our next podcast, most likely. Mm-hmm. Uh, in the week before the Supreme Court resumes its operations for its October 2012 term, they will be considering cert petitions that have been filed over the summer. And they are confronted with at least six cert petitions in gay rights cases. Uh, they have the Gill case, the Galinsky case, the Windsor case, the Peterson case, all DOMA Section 3. They have a cert petition from the proponents of Proposition 8, uh, which I don't think we, uh, we discussed in uh, the last podcast because that postdates the last podcast. So the people who were uh, – the proponents, the people who drew it up, got the signatures, campaigned for it, have now appealed the Ninth Circuit's ruling to the Supreme Court. Uh, so that's pending. And we have a petition for review in the Brewer case from Arizona in which uh, Lambda Legal won a victory in the Ninth Circuit holding that the uh, federal district court did not abuse its discretion by issuing an injunction to maintain domestic partnership benefits for Arizona state employees. Uh, so that's on uh, so, yeah, petition. Uh, procedurally, can we get a decision prior to the November election or no. we will be after? No, but, okay. but what we will get most likely before the election, well before the election, is whether the Supreme Court is going to take these cases, any or all of them. And there's a particularly interesting question concerning Gill, Galinsky, Windsor, and Peterson, the four DOMA cases, uh, there has been some suggestion that I've seen in the legal press that Justice Kagan, who was Solicitor General of the United States while the uh, Obama administration was still defending DOMA in the Gill case, might feel uh, some need to recuse herself if the Gill case goes up. I don't know if that will eventuate. It's up to each justice to decide whether to recuse. Uh, I don't know to what extent she was involved in the strategizing uh, this is petrifying. Arthur. I mean, the Solicitor General normally <laughs> the Solicitor generally normally represents the government in the Supreme Court, and it's the Justice Department, uh, the Civil Division in the Justice Department, that is doing the Court of Appeals and uh, the trial level. But you know, if she feels that she should recuse herself, then we have an eight-judge court. Now, if we have a four-to-four decision by an, a, an eight-judge court, that affirms by default the Court of Appeals decision. But that's not a very stable precedent, <laughs> and we're we're talking about a statute that applies to well over a thousand federal rights, and we're talking about a First Circuit decision to be applied to the whole nation, a decision that didn't even go on bank. It's just decided by three judges. It's striking down a federal statute. Maybe this gives an incentive to the court to grant cert in Galinsky, Windsor, or Peterson and to hold the cert petition in Gill. 
and maybe Justice Kagan wouldn't feel a need to recuse herself in those cases because she was on the court when those cases were being litigated. Although in some sense, but, much you know, of the if she participated, is right, very if she participated similar. in discussing the substance, right. you know, she may still feel. So, I, so I, she, I'm just going to go on a limit. I don't think yes. she's going to recuse herself. Yeah, I, I hope not because it would be better to be decided by a yeah. non-judge court. I don't think she wants to sit this one out. That's but I don't think her participation or lack of participation would affect the outcome. That's it. It, in would, that be, sense. it would be the perception of the outcome. Perhaps. Yeah, because this case can only be won if we have five votes, mm-hmm. unless it's an eight-judge court, in which case a tie will affirm all these decisions. Right. Uh, and presumably and she, presumably would, be one of the she would be one of the – well, she would be one of the four Democratic appointees right. who were yeah. most likely, given their past record on constitutional right. issues. If we got a five, she would clearly right. be one of the five. If we, and if we got a five, Justice Kennedy would be part of the five. So presumably if it was a four-to-four tie, it would be because although, Justice Kennedy agrees. Although Justice Roberts has, has, has begun to surprise some people. So who knows? Well – Who knows, Art? You know, we could spend 30 minutes talking about the Affordable Care Act case, no, but we're not going we're to. Going, so we're let's turn away. briefly, let's, briefly, given the time we have, we've, we've never done to briefly. the Hawaii case. Okay, so uh, this is under the um, it can't all be good news right. theme. Now and then so we lose take it a case. away. Now and then we lose a case. All right, in Hawaii in 2011. Where all the marriage stuff in many ways started. Right, with Bear versus Lewin back That's in the right. 90s. Well, in 2011... The Hawaii legislature passed and Governor Abercrombie signed into law a Civil Union Act, which gives same-sex couples and different-sex couples the right to have civil unions that have all the state law rights of marriage. Okay, uh, this was not good enough for people in Hawaii, same-sex couples who wanted to get married. Right. And so they brought a lawsuit in which they claimed that giving you, you all the rights of marriage but denying you the name violates the 14th Amendment's equal protection requirement. And they got assigned to a senior federal district judge, Judge Kay. Uh, Senior means quasi-retired. And Judge Kay decided that this is a political question, not a judicial question. He decided that uh, the decision of who should marry should be up to the elected representatives of the people, not a quasi-retired federal district judge. And sort of made the, like, let's let it play out yeah. argument. The let's let it play out. But in addition, he said, this suit is precluded by the Supreme Court's decision in Baker versus Nelson. Baker versus Nelson. I knew you were going to say that. Uh, way back in the... <laughs> I don't want to ever hear about Baker versus the Nelson The Pleistocene <laughs> era of gay rights. You know, this is gay prehistory. This is, you know... Well, it's right... It's shortly after Stonewall, but it's before we started winning cases. Uh, and controlling, a, a, in some yeah. measure, what kind of cases yeah. were brought. A same-sex couple in Minnesota filed suit on their own, seeking a marriage license. Uh, they were rejected by the Minnesota Supreme Court, and they filed a petition with the U.S. Supreme Court for review. In those days, they had a right to a decision on the merits, uh, the way the uh, process was set up, uh, since they had placed in question the constitutionality of a state law under the federal constitution. The Supreme Court's approach in cases like that in those days was if they didn't think much of the case, they would dismiss the petition uh, on grounds that there was no substantial federal question presented. Right. And so many and courts have looked at that precedent yes. and said it's of limited relevance. It's a summary. Not many yeah. courts. Well, some. Courts have been very careful to distinguish what the question is in the case before them. Mm-hmm. So unless – the question is specifically whether a state is obliged under the 14th Amendment to allow same-sex couples to marry. Courts have said that's the only question that is 
at least uh, for now, decided by the Supreme right, Court. Right, and to Bay. be fair, the, and this is very different than the DOMA analysis. Right. And there are quite a few courts who have said that an awful lot has happened since the early 1970s, well, and including you, Romer and Right, Lawrence, and, and, you know. and this judge tackles head-on. I, I, yeah. I guess he has to because it's right. presented by the parties, but the idea of that, in his mind, Lawrence and Romer are of no moment to any of this. Well, I mean, what, I mean, what he, he says hasn't changed... Is, yeah, what he says is Romer was a, a rational basis case, so it doesn't raise the standard of review at all. And Lawrence was a due process case and uh, expressly didn't decide any equal protection issue. Therefore, he said he's bound by Ninth Circuit precedent, which is high-tech gaze versus Defense Industrial Security Clearance Office, the case I love to call high-tech gays versus disco. As we all know, the contempt with which high-tech gays look at disco. Uh, and, and so the Ninth Circuit in that case, relying on Bowers versus Hardwick, this was a pre-Lawrence case, uh, held that there could be no heightened scrutiny uh, for uh, sexual orientation claims because, after all, gay sex was a crime not protected That's by right. the Constitution. That's right. Now, of course, the Supreme Court has overruled Bowers, but the Ninth Circuit has not yet disavowed high-tech gays. And in fact, I think that uh, the Galinsky case would probably present them with a great opportunity to disavow high-tech gays if it were to be argued in the Ninth Circuit. Well, I- I'm going to jump in and I'm going to read your yeah. own words because yes. sometimes you get – Read my own words. Yeah, I'm going to read – I wax poetic yeah, in this well, issue. Yeah, well, you know, it's not fair. Sometimes on the podcast, is not the, the correlation between your – the level of jazzed-upness you have in writing versus on the – but there's not always yeah. the correlation. But this, this is Art Leonard's own words about what this judge does in applying a very um, – we call forgiving sta- – even more forgiving standard standard of rational basis review yeah. uh, and what's required. He says, this is this is art summarizing this judge's uh, application of rational basis. It means, quote, legislatures need not base their policy judgment on established facts. They can hypothesize or courts can hypothesize for them any justification that would be at least debatable. As long as a party submits junk science in the form of a published journal article contradicting the findings of valid scientific inquiry, the question becomes debatable, and a legislative judgment can be based on, quote, the findings of either side. So in that passage, you seem rather um, displeased with Judge K. Well, this is because... uh, Get jazzed. I want to hear it. Judge K allowed an anti-gay group in Hawaii, the Hawaii Marriage Forum, something like Hawaii Family Forum, to intervene in the case for no good reason because uh, a state official was defending the marriage law in this case, not the governor. So it's the reverse reverse Prop 8 scenario where the government was not defending. There was no need here to allow. But this intervener, uh, following the strategy, which has been grandly conceived by right-wing foundations and others, uh, cited in their brief the infamous Regnerus study. This is a study that was published in a uh, sociological journal by a University of Texas professor, Mark Regnerus, which purports to show that children raised by same-sex couples uh, turn out worse than children raised by different-sex couples. Uh, And this is supposed to provide a rational basis for states to favor different-sex couples over same-sex couples when it comes to marriage because of marriage's link with procreation and child-rearing. I mean, the whole chain of reasoning is bizarre. But the point is that the Regner study is junk science. The Regner study uh, has You point been, out the professor is facing possible uh, Well, it turns out that right? the University of Texas chickened out on that. Oh. They, they wimped out on that, and, and they decided there's just a difference of opinion. Well, to harken but, back uh, to the discussion we had about Mr. Clement earlier, yeah. I mean, so, so what? They cite two of... 
well, somewhat Reg- misleading Reg- Regner's, Regner's produced a study that is sociologically unsound, okay. that makes comparisons of unlike things in inappropriate ways. Uh, the, the journal itself, challenged about this, commissioned one of its board members who hadn't been involved in the whole controversy but who's a sociology professor to review this, and the guy said basically that the Regner study is bullshit. That's Ooh, the language he art. used. Art. In an interview. Oh, that's someone else's in the, quote. In the, yes. Okay, in, the, in the report. I, I should I'm, insert I'm, again. I'm quoting this guy. <laughs> My God, we just – Art, please. <laughs> so now we're going to have to put an X rating on this, on this edition. No, we the, might actually. Podcast. I don't know what yeah. this is going to happen when this goes into the iTunes store. We're not allowed to curse. We're not allowed to curse? Well, I think there's like an explicit find- – this will be a segue into the adult zoning establishment yeah. case we're about yes, to talk about will. art. So at any rate – Please, calm down. So at any rate, <laughs> I, I got very upset because this is, as far as I can tell, the first time that a court has cited this disreputable study and thus vindicating the strategy that the right-wing foundation sure. that gave money to Mr. Regnerus to conduct the study – we're looking for. Yeah, it's like fund the study, were, cited. They were then, looking right. for a publication of a study in a quote-unquote reputable journal that then could be cited on the other side of the question of whether same-sex couples are capable of and then this, And then the footnotes to these study, even long after the study yes. is, right. is discredited, they'll cite to the footnote to the right. study. So. And, and the judge's position, of course, is under rational basis, as you, you quoted from me. Uh, as long as an issue is debatable – a legislature can rely on it because I under take the that case as a lawyer. Yeah. That's a good one. Yeah, All right, we're we're going to leave it there. We're going to so art is uh, already turn I, to our other stuff. Yeah, I mean I, after and, our and break, lots of editing are going to have is going to have to happen now. Um, we're going to take a short break. When we return, I'm going to ask you to keep it clean. When we return, this was the case I was worried about. We're going to be talking about a case out of New York, adult concer- clubs, con- concerning challenges to New York City's adult zoning, uh, adult establishment zoning uh, amendments, basically laws regulating adult businesses. Stay with us. Okay, we're back. We've uh, we've calmed down just a little bit here at the Law Notes Podcast. Um, We're talking about the case of People Theaters of New York versus the City of New York. Um, And this involves a challenge, to be a little bit more precise, to the 2001 amendments to New York City's zoning law Regulating adult businesses such as bookstores and video stores and topless nightclubs and bars. Uh, In the recent ruling, the court took a critical look at some of the changes implemented at these establishments and found that the entities at issue, quote, no longer operate in an atmosphere placing more dominance of sexual matters over non-sexual ones. And that matters to the analysis. Accordingly, there is no need for these amendments. And on their face, they are a violation of free speech provisions of the U.S. and state constitutions. In preparing for the discussion today... You noted a couple of things, excuse me, initially about this case. You said first that some history was needed to understand it, um, and I'm sure you'll provide the history. And the second is that you thought the judge here had issued a, um, I think you said a brave decision. Yes. So why don't we start, um, let's start with the history. The history. Okay. When Rudy Giuliani was elected mayor of New York, cast your minds back into (laughs) earlier history, uh, one of his goals was to clean up the city. That is, that there were clusters of adult businesses in various areas of the city that were considered to be, at least by the mayor, nuisances. That is, that they allegedly attracted crime and they negatively affected property values and that they were annoying to people who lived or did business nearby. Uh, So there was a proposal in the city council, which the mayor strongly supported, to change the zoning law to disperse adult businesses and to sort of isolate them 
in uh, remote areas of the city, uh, far away from what the casual tourist, resident, or uh, business person in the city would encounter on a regular basis. Uh, so in order to do this, under federal constitutional law, as long as the businesses are selling lawful goods and services, you can't crack down on them based on their content because of First Amendment protection for expression. However, you can use zoning laws to locate them uh, in such a way as to avoid adverse secondary effects that they may generate, such as crime, uh, noise. noise, adverse property values, mm -hmm. etc., uh, but you have to have some documentation that the existing businesses are generating the secondary effects. So the city council commissioned a study. Uh, the study purported to show that the clusters of adult businesses around the city were generating these secondary effects. Based on the study, the city council passed amendments to the existing zoning ordinance in 1995. And these amendments were to break up the clusters by saying that uh, adult businesses cannot be within 500 feet of each other. They couldn't be within 500 feet of a school. school they couldn't churches. be within 500 feet. You know, and that there were only certain parts of the city where they could locate. However, if something wasn't an adult business, then it wasn't affected by the zoning ordinance. So the zoning ordinance is passed, and the city did not – in the ordinance itself define what an adult business is. So that had to be done by regulation. And people were looking for a rule of thumb. What constitutes an adult business? I think it's a know it when you see a test. Don't no, you think? it wasn't. Uh, and this is how, <laughs> Shouldn't it be? This is how the, city, uh, the city stumbled in, in doing this. They decided to uh, adopt what was called the 60-40 test. As long as no more than 40 percent of the area of an establishment was devoted to adult business, to adult goods or services, then it wasn't considered an adult business. Just get a bigger place. Uh, not not bigger. It's proportion. So adult businesses that wanted um, to continue – See, this is why I'm not – I wasn't a math major. Yeah. That, was, that was very good, Art. Yes. Well, adult, <laughs> adult businesses that wanted to remain in areas that were prohibited to adult businesses had to reconfigure. Uh, they had to change the stock, diversify the, uh, the things they sold or the uh, services they provided so that they weren't predominantly so adult So in businesses. practical terms, in the case of perhaps a, a place featuring new dancing, yeah. that there would be another area where it perhaps would just be a – Where the a, dancers were closed. Well, or there would yeah. be no dancers right. or, or a bookstore oh, well, that may well, have certain they, types they, of material yeah, would the, no longer – The prime example yeah. is a store that's selling porn. You know, uh, They have to – diversify their stock so less than 40 percent of their stock is sexually related. Uh, so uh, the plaintiffs in this case were a whole long list of adult businesses in various parts of uh, the city that tried to transform themselves in compliance. Uh, they reconfigured. They reallocated space. They diversified their stock. They provided new non-sexually related services. They changed their signage so that their exteriors would no longer emphasize sexually related business. And uh, the city sent in uh, their inspectors to the places that uh, had previously been considered adult businesses to see how they were operating. And the city inspectors reported back that in some of these cases it was a sham. Yeah, the, that they, they literally called it a sham. They said these are still adult businesses. They're just masquerading as non-adult businesses. And uh, they tried to take action against them. And the defense of the adult businesses were we are in compliance with the 60-40 requirement. And uh, the courts had upheld the 60-40 requirement when it was challenged. And uh, the courts now said, if you're in compliance with the 60-40 requirement, then you're not out of compliance with the zoning. So uh, the city council came back 
uh, this is right toward the end of the Giuliani administration in 2001, uh, the council came back and they passed the 2001 amendments, uh, which had a whole new list of things that would have to be complied with, which would make it almost impossible for these businesses to continue to sell a, a, a sexually related materials or provide the services, even though they're not obscene, so they're protected by the First Amendment. Uh, and the city did not do a new study. And this is where they tripped up in this case. Uh, initially, uh, Justice Lou York, to whom it was assigned in Supreme Court, he initially upheld the 2001 uh, uh, new zoning amendments because he said uh, this is a rational basis case. And, and the city did have some basis for believing that uh, some of these businesses might really still be predominantly adult businesses, especially because of the proportion of their revenue that came from adult uh, materials. But uh, this went up on appeal, and the court said, no, this is, this is content-based regulation of expressive activity, expressive goods, speed, books, films, things mm -hmm. of that sort, dancing, which is a First Amendment-protected activity. Uh, so they said, you've got to use some kind of heightened scrutiny here. And they sent it back to him to reconsider. And uh, he took another look, and he said, well, if this is a heightened scrutiny case, it's clear that the city can't just presume that the 60-40 establishments generate the same secondary effects that were documented in the original study, because the original study was of businesses that were 100 percent adult businesses. Right, one expected to be different. So I want to kind of do a new study. I, I want to ask you one question. It's not a, a question we normally have occasion yeah. to ask here on the podcast. Why are we doing this in law notes, right? Um, yeah. I mean, I think we can certainly draw a line, um, you know, connect the dots, so to speak, on why this may be a, a story in lesbian and gay law notes. But as of right now, you haven't mentioned anything particularly LGBT related about any well, of this? Well, because a lot of the a lot of the goods and services that are provided in these stores are of particular interest to gay consumers, you know, gay related materials. And and there was a long time, uh, you know, going back historically, there was a time when general bookstores and and general uh, places that were selling movies and things of that sort just did not stop right. gay-related material. So these stores, and these stores also, you know, to be perfectly frank, some of these stores were cruising places for gay people. Well, this is a good opportunity. Some well. of these places yeah. were, um, there's a laundry list of them. There's yeah. Tens, Tens Cabaret, VIP well, Club, these are the Private Eyes, Lace, HQ, Wiggles. There's, um, those are clubs. Um, there's uh, Show World. Uh, these are bookstores and, and, and video stores. Exquisite DVD, Blue Door Video, and this gives me an opportunity, Art, to I've never been to any of these any, places. To establish a foundation for the expertise on this subject. You have been to none of these places. None. I cannot second-guess Justice York's description of the various plaintiffs. You should ask me where I've been on that All list. right. Which of these people, places have you patronized? Where, where would you have guessed that I've been? Where would I guess that you have been? Don't uh, answer that. <laughs> don't answer that? I, I have been. You've been to private eyes. As, as the victim of a being the bachelor party organizer uh, of a friend who should remain nameless, a straight friend. Uh-huh. Um, I found myself at Private Eyes. And were you were you absolutely stunned by the sexual aura <laughs> of the business? <laughs> it's funny you should ask that. I was stunned by two things. Um, well, no, not oh, the second one only came after I read this this thing. I didn't know there was anything non-sexual about the place. Apparently, there is a spot where, you know, I only went to the place where. There's, there's, there was, there's a spot where asexual people well, hang out. <laughs> I was struck by how it's, it's sort of out of the movies um, that it, it was the case that many people at that bachelor party genuinely believed that the performer had fallen in love with them. 
you know, the, 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 words, the scenario was, of the tips that keep coming because yes. the person really believes that this, this was a convincing performance. It was it's very convincing. So I've been to privatized, but there's a very curious line in this case. I found it curious that the court notes that room service, which is another place, held events featuring such celebrities as Mariah Carey, Janet J- Jackson, and Mo Vaughn. <laughs> Does that sentence strike you as a little strange? Uh, you don't know who Mo Vaughn is. No. No, right. Mariah Carey uh, and Janet Jackson are pop performers, yes. right? You can those, those, are names. those are names. Mo I've Vaughn heard. was a first baseman for first the Angels and then the New York Mets. Maybe have... there's a different Mo Vaughn. <laughs> no. Or maybe it was just a personal appearance by a celebrity. Well, right? that's fine. It's an odd. I, that yeah. might be the only sentence that has ever featured those three as three celebrities. In... And, and I'll make you a bet that they didn't appear together. <laughs> Well, maybe Mo Vaughn was there yes. for them. Okay, maybe he was in the audience. So you answered. Um, y- you do. You do point out um, there's a there's a point at the end of this where the judge, uh, you know, he labels it dicta, which is helpful because sometimes it's not so clear what's dicta. But he really takes on that New York State in particular has a storied reputation of protecting free English speech, and he seems right. quite troubled that in this state, this city, this state, that this kind of case would emerge. Well, you know, it's 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 really interesting because you look at New York City today and you look at New York City 25 or 30 years ago and there was a real proliferation of adult businesses in many parts of New York. Uh, There's some dispute about whether the secondary effects that they may or may not have generated were so severe that uh, there was a real justification for the degree of regulation that was imposed. But there's no doubt the Court of Appeals upheld the uh, original 1995 zoning ordinance uh, as being adequately documented by the original study. And Justice York now says, look, you've got different businesses now. They're not like the adult businesses before. They've been reconfigured. They've de-emphasized the sexual proportion of of their services and their inventory. Uh, So if you want to take further steps, you have to show that there's still a problem. And the interesting thing is the city didn't bother getting expert study done. The plaintiffs commissioned expert studies, which show that property values go up around 60-40s, that show that crime is down around 60-40s. And the city put on an expert witness who Justice York found so unconvincing that he said, I'm not going to credit his testimony. He's just giving his opinions. He's not documenting anything. Fair enough. So. We're going to leave it there. We're going to conclude with a very short of note segment where we mention uh, – we've already sort of mentioned notable or hilarious developments. Uh, Quite a world few. So uh, we're, going to be, we're going to be right back, and we will close the podcast. We're back with our of note segment. And, Art, you're, you're going to be the only one to do of note today because we're running over. So what do you have briefly of note? Okay. Massachusetts Supreme Court decision from July 26 uh, involving gay polygamy. Well, you know, you, it was bound to happen sooner or later. All right, so <laughs> same-sex couple gets a civil union in Vermont. Then they drift apart, and one of them moves to Massachusetts and gets married in Massachusetts to his new boyfriend. This is sort of accidental polygamy in some well, ways. Well, I, I think the guy still knew that he had a right, civil union Right, but it's not, it's not living. All right, uh, okay. so, so that relationship lasts a while, but it's, it sort of falls apart, and there's a petition for divorce on file. Well, do we really need to have a divorce if – one of the one of the spouses was previously in a civil union in Vermont with someone else, which was never officially dissolved. Uh, so the case goes up to the Massachusetts Supreme Court, which says, well, we don't have civil unions in Massachusetts, but we recognize civil unions from Vermont as being equivalent to same-sex marriages in Massachusetts. And therefore, this marriage was never valid in the first place, 
because one of the parties was already civilly united with somebody else and it had never been dissolved. And therefore, no divorce because there was no marriage. It's a tidy way of dealing with yeah. it. Very interesting case. Yeah. Okay, it's, that's it. Uh, right. That's, that's it. it. That's of note. And I'm not doing any of note today. That's all the time we have today to uh, thanks, Art. Thanks for listening. To read the latest issue of Law Notes, please become a member of Legal or a Law Notes subscriber by visiting www.le-gal.org. To read back issues, you can visit the Justice Action Center of New York Law School. And this and future podcasts can be found online in iTunes or at legal.podbean.com. Thanks for listening.